Let's pray. God, this morning, before we ask some specifics about how we spend these next few minutes, I want to pray for another church in town. I want to pray for Family Fellowship and Paul Blue and his family. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, the friends that I have at Family Fellowship, the um, many years, decades of ministry that you have uh, consistently provided this community through Family Fellowship. Uh, I want to pray for Paul uh, first. I'm praying First of all, for his worship, Lord, that he is um, stretched and challenged in his studies. I pray that he is relentlessly uh, pursuing you and seeking your face and understanding your ways and your work, and that that is um, sustaining him, first of all, in his marriage, that that would be something that he um, finds a clear and daily connection to as he um, loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Lord, I pray that... Uh, their marriage would be, first of all, a beautiful picture of the gospel to their kids, um, but then to also to their church, that it would be a wellspring in some ways of ministry to the people at Family Fellowship uh, as he enjoys you. Lord, I'm thankful for, um, again, for their, their ministry there. I pray that uh, as we serve alongside folks at Family Fellowship and in our workplaces or in our community or as neighbors and as friends, that... Uh, we can cheer for them, and we can want and hope for great things through the ministry of Family Fellowship, and we are thankful for having the chance to lift them up this morning. Uh, Lord, as far as how we spend these next few minutes, I pray for your guidance, uh, your word, your, in, through your word, and uh, that the Holy Spirit will work this morning uh, in a way that would um, build identity, that would make for more, more faithful placeholding. Um, I'm thankful at the beginning of this sermon for the peace that you've given me about this message. Um, Lord, I pray that we will be um, faithful in hearing it. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will work that. Uh, we turn this time over to you as an offering. We're thankful for your word and your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1, please. I've been thinking these last couple of weeks with some recent developments in the news over the last few months as well. I'm 47 years old, and I don't know that in 47 years I ever remember a time where sin has been so condoned and celebrated as it is right now in our context. Uh, with the SCOTUS decision and things like that, it is, it is a unique time in my lifetime. I'm not one of those doomsday kind of people that believes that, oh, Jesus is about to come back, because look at what the SCOTUS decided. Uh, I, I'm not a doomsday kind of guy. We've been living in the end times since Christ ascended into the heavens. Okay, so that, I'm not one of those kind of guys. And at any period in different civilizations, Christians have faced a severe persecution and severe darkness. But in the last 47 years, I'm just talking in my little snapshot of my life, at least when I've been paying attention. I can't say all for all 47 years I've been paying attention, but in the last 47 years, I don't know when sin has been so celebrated. I also don't know in the last 40, 47 years, at least when, that I've been aware of Christians facing persecution as I have in these last few years. Just in the last few months, to think about a shooting in Charleston in a church. Just in the last couple of weeks, a shooting in Oregon, where if you're a Christian, I'm going to shoot you in the head. And then also in the news these last couple of weeks, I don't know if you, I hope that you are attentive to things like this. 
12 Syrian aid workers were martyred for their faith in Syria. I've really wrestled with how much detail to share there, and I'm going to play conservative because there's some little bitty ones in here with us, and I want parents to be able to use discretion in what they share with their children. But I will say this, it involved a 12-year-old boy and his dad watching on as some severe, heartbreaking, unspeakable things happen, not only to the 12-year-old, but to all of them because they're Christians. What I've been settled, or what's settled me, I guess, what's made me feel peaceful about a sermon like this is that I, I just can't help but believe that these 12 missionaries, a 12-year-old and 11 adults, I can't help but believe that they had been equipped and sustained and prepared for that hour with something substantial. I just don't think God has a special plan for your life and your special little snowflake is going to sustain you in a moment like that. I don't think that God wants you to be happy and healthy is going to sustain you in a moment like that where it's going to cost you your life if you don't renounce faith in Christ. I'm just convinced that they had something more substantial in their diet leading up to that point. Somebody, somewhere in their story, had to have been unpacking deep and important and substantial and maybe even at the moment feeling irrelevant kind of truths that prepared them for that hour. So the Lord's given me a piece about this morning because I guess I've landed on the thought that this morning is a martyr equipping sermon. It may not make for better husband, better wife, better parent, better kid, better workmate, better neighbor. It may not. Better steward. It may. But I suspect the place where we're going, like we're going this morning, will help you see that you're part of a big story that God's been working out over thousands of years. And will give you some deep roots so that if you face a dark night of the soul, or you face a, a trial that it's even remotely challenging, that you can be faithful and stay the course. It's a martyr-equipping sermon, whether you're ever martyred or not. I think it's also an identity-shaping sermon, and hopefully will make for more faithful placeholding, whether the next 47 years gets darker or whether it's a time of peace. We don't know. It's a God's business. But we can hope and pray for faithful placeholding, whether it's peaceful and good or dark and difficult. This morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 31. I'd like to read it in full, and then we'll consider a little context, and then we'll climb right into it. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. 
Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Just some brief context. Isaiah was a prophet preaching to Judah especially, primarily. But this 66 long chapter is, is really a 66 long vision that he had over the course of his 40-year ministry. And it had application not only for Judah, but also for Israel to the north. The kingdoms are split at this point. Judah's in the south. Israel is in the north. It had application for the surrounding world at the time. And beautifully, thankfully, it has application for us at this point, 2,800 years later. It stretches into our time and even stretches on ahead to the end of the age when Christ returns. It's a big book and has lots of application. Chronologically, we can place Isaiah in an important place, and I want you to pay attention to where I'm placing him, 250 years or so after King David. Don't you think of King David as a bookend? And then the other bookend being King Jesus, about 750 years, 700 to 750 years after Isaiah. So the bookends for Isaiah this morning are King David and King Jesus. King David, 250 years beforehand. King Jesus, 750 years later. The first five chapters of this book are really challenging five chapters. They're sort of like a preface to the book. We've spent the last three weeks there. This is our fourth installment here in these first five chapters. In some ways, they're like an aerial view of his 40-year ministry to Judah, especially to declining Judah, I should, should say, as they're on their way into the Babylonian exile. The last few weeks as sort of a, uh, an to help us visualize what's taking place here, we've considered this to be almost like a courtroom where God is father but also judge. Isaiah has served in some ways as a prosecuting attorney and Israel, the guilty, sits in the courtroom wearing orange. If you haven't listened to the last three installments in Isaiah, I really, really, really urge you to do so. This, in some ways, is a building block sort of book. You have to, um, each of these sermons, in some ways, are interconnected and interdependent on the other. And honestly, for the sake of my own sanity, I need to know that our people are working hard at missing those Sundays that they, or capturing those Sundays that they miss. I need to know that because I need to know that you understand more context than I'm able to share in a single sermon that you need to hear as part of the conversation. So if you haven't been here the last few weeks or you've missed a Sunday or two, Please do the work of catching up, okay? Now, I will say this, too. I try very, very, very hard, before I continue, I want to share this. I try very, very hard at making the truth clear and plain, but some of that clarity is dependent on previous installments. That's why I'm taking time out of this sermon to say, please go back and listen. I need to know for my sanity 
that you're doing that. Let's take our time and unpack this passage, beginning in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Isaiah here takes this people back to a time when Jerusalem is the faithful city that he speaks of. He uses the term Zion and Jerusalem interchangeably. And here he's using an image of this city being the wife and he calls her a whore here. Don't miss the word. Uh, Parents, I'll let you take care of sorting that out at home. He calls the faithful city, the previously faithful city now, a whore that's full of murderers. The city and the people he's considering and addressing them like they are a cheating wife. This isn't a new concept in that time. And in fact, there was a contemporary of Isaiah, a man named Hosea, whose book starts out almost identically to Isaiah's. With the same reign of kings in the same order over the same period. He was clearly a contemporary of Isaiah. Hosea was given the dirty job of going off and marrying a prostitute named Gomer as a walking, living, visual aid to the people of Israel and Judah to what they're doing with their God. It's a very profound teaching, and it's one that, frankly, is under, was underdeveloped for most of my life growing up, but we've considered it a few Sundays over the course of our time here. The first time we ever considered it was on Mother's Day, which, I, to much to my chagrin, the whoredom of God's people was Mother's Day a few years ago. Man, it's a, it's a developed thought in our Bibles. And it's one that we, as graphic as it may be, need to consider. The city and the people are considering it, considered a cheating wife. And it's, it's illustrated by Hosea's wife, who was a prostitute named Gomer. In fact, what they'd done, they had breached both tablets of law. If you consider the the visual aid of the tablets, you've seen Moses or a picture of Moses carrying these two tablets. The first tablet has to do with sort of vertical things that have to do between God and man. The second tablet has to do with sort of horizontal things that have to do between man and other man. And both tablets are breached here where they're being accused of whoredom in the vertical direction where he says, have no other gods before me where they've got plenty. Underneath every green tree, they've been beckoned to worship many foreign gods. And then the second one, the first on the second tablet would be, thou shalt not murder. And he's saying, you are now murderers. In some ways, taking the top of both of the tablets, in some ways he's, he's developing the image that you have taken all of my law and trashed my law. A breach of both tablets starting at the top of each. Yet at one time, They had been considered faithful and just. It's important to connect to the time. I'm not going to have you turn there this morning. I am going to have you turn a few places, just two other places this morning. But I want to be efficient, not for my sake, but for your sake, in using your turning energy when you need it. I'm going to take you to a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 4 at a time when they had been faithful and just. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, here's how that went down, or here's how at least the the beginning reign 
in Jerusalem took place. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. The Jebusites were some of the Canaanites that were still living in Jerusalem. They hadn't been removed from Jerusalem by Joshua and the armies as they, they um, did the conquest of the land. The Jebusites were still inhabiting Jerusalem. And they said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. They're basically saying to David, hey, we're going to put our blind and our lame up here defending ourselves against you, the the likes of you, because that's all it's going to take is our blind and our lame folks, because you're not coming up in here, up in Jerusalem. Well, nevertheless, it says, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack you could put in quotations, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. He's not talking about real lame and blind people. He's talking about the Jebusites. Therefore it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow upward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That's an important time the establishment of his reign in Jerusalem that continued on for 33 years, this is the time that Isaiah is speaking of when they were just and righteous and faithful under David's reign. Now, there is this big glaring blip on David's radar of being an adulterer and a murderer, but in large part, the character of that 33-year reign was that the city was not a whore, and was not unfaithful and was not unjust, but was characterized by faithfulness and righteousness and justice. But here now, 250 years later, they're not anymore. Isaiah says, now you're a whore and now you're full of murderers. And look at Isaiah going out trying to find his wife right now as she's running around on him as a visual aid of that. It's a heartbreaking verse, first verse. He illustrates it in the second verse. In verse 22, he says, Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. In this illustration, he's saying that your silver has literally changed nature. It's no longer silver anymore. It has become dross. Your nature as being just and righteous has changed altogether to the point of being unrecognizable. The people that you were 250 years ago is unrecognizable now. You don't even look like that people anymore. And you are also useless, by the way, which is just like watered-down wine. The next couple of verses, or the next verse, he offers proof of their guilt. In verse 23, he says, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Their rebellious leaders were making deals with thieves. There's a large part of the sermon that ended up on the cutting room floor this morning. And this week, actually, the, the, the final swoop, the final slice was made this morning, and I'm saving it for a later date. Some beautiful illustrations of their princes striking hands with thieves. Ahaz, to be particular and to be specific. We're going to see Ahaz up close and personal in our next round of Isaiah sermons. We're not going to look at him this morning, but if you would like to read Ahaz's story, you can do a search for him and read him as an illustration of a rebellious leader who's making deals with thieves. The people, too, were driven by selfish gain. 
I read one commentator that said that, that the, the context, the way that people were moving is, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. This network of people that, I've got this service, so you've got this service, so I'll do, we'll sort of barter through life, and I'll scratch your back, and you scratch my back, which doesn't sound all that bad. The problem is, when the orphans and widows don't have any scratching currency, then they get left out. And that was the problem in Jerusalem here and in Judah. The I scratch your back and you scratch my back thing works out well except for those that have no scratch currency. And the orphans and widows were completely out of that. So there's promised judgment, verses 24 through 26. God here begins to speak. Up to this point in this passage we've been looking at today, Isaiah's been speaking, but now here God speaks back to the courtroom. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. Here this passage begins to take a turn and a surprising turn at that. Up to this point, I'm beginning to think that this people, he's going to call this a wash and he's going to annihilate everyone. So the true king here begins to speak. He's going to reconcile what's out of order. He's going to straighten what's crooked and he's going to work vengeance against his enemies and his foes. And he's not talking about Jebusites or Canaanites or Hittites or Philistines at this point. He's now calling his children that he called earlier in the chapter his children, his enemies and his foes. Man, this city is in bad shape. Judah is in bad shape. Unrecognizable compared to their former nature. He calls them now his enemies and his foes. It sounds to me like so far they're done. Sounds to me like they're done. But he uses two words here. And they're used the same. It's the same exact word in Hebrew, but they're used two different ways in the passage. The first, I will turn. I will turn is a key passage that's saying, I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. He will change their very nature back into what it once was. He's not going to destroy it. He's going to purify it. That's got to be good news. If you can imagine yourself being an Israelite, living during this time, actually hearing this message, saying, oh, okay, that's good news. Isaiah must have thought that's good news, that it's a purification plan instead of an annihilation plan. But it's going to take a profound work to change an entire people's nature back to what it should be. And this second, I will restore, is actually the same word in Hebrew. You could say, I will turn the tide of the whoredom and the murdering. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. I'm expecting at this point to see I will turn my hand against you and I will destroy you. But now instead we see I will restore you. He said he's going to restore their judges and their counselors and the city won't be called Gomer anymore, which she could have been. The city won't be called Sodom anymore, which it was. The city won't be called Gomorrah anymore, like it was. It's going to be called yet again the city of righteousness and the faithful city. It's going to take a profound 
work for that to happen. But just consider that he's saying it's going to happen. Just consider for a moment. A husband here has been cheated on. Over and over and over again. A husband has been cheated on. A father has been forgotten. A creator has been denied. And this husband, this father, this creator is going to restore his people to ideal. He's going to purify this people. He didn't and he doesn't leave them in their mess, but he will purify them and they will be called holy again. That's really good news for them. How's he going to do this? Verse 27. Verse 27, I think, is in some ways the central passage in the first five chapters. And in some ways it may be the central and most important passage in the entire book. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. Zion will be redeemed by justice and the repentant. It's a Hebrew participle there that can be translated the turning ones, which is a play on words. I'm going to turn my hand against you. I'm going to turn the tide away from whoredom and from murder. And I'm going to do all this for the ones who are turning back to me in repentance. That's who these promises are for. The turning ones. They're going to be redeemed by Righteousness. Redemption would have, been, would have been a familiar word to them and a very familiar concept for them. I want to share a passage with you from Numbers 18. If you just really want to turn there, you can. Numbers 18, 15, or you can just listen and just hang tight. If you want to turn anywhere, turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and be ready. We're going to look at a passage here, a very important one. Dealing with redemption, listen to this passage in Numbers chapter 18, verse 15. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. Watch what's going on here. And their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them, you shall fix it five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty geras. But the firstborn of a cow or the firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. If you're paying attention and noting what's being redeemed there, what needs to be redeemed there, he's saying right now, he's saying that humans and unclean animals, the firstborn of humans and unclean animals need to be redeemed with something being paid. It's going to cost them something to be redeemed. If you want to understand what redemption means, notice that the holy things like a cow, a firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem because they're already holy. What he's saying here is something's got to be paid in order for something to be holified. If you want to know where man is standing in the whole thing, see that he's, we're not standing with the cow or the goat or the sheep. We're standing with the unclean animals in need of redemption. The concept of redemption would have been very familiar to this people, as it should be very familiar to us. It's going to cost something to holify the unclean, which is you and me, and which is the city 
and which is this people at this point. Redemption means this change from whoredom to justice and righteousness is going to cost someone something. Because redemption holifies the unclean. And not only is it going to cost something, it's going to cost a lot. And it's going to be paid by a new and better David. If you're in 2 Samuel 7, you're in the right place. I'm going to share a passage with you. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. I noted at the beginning of the morning that these bookends of King David and King Jesus were important. And King David is important because whether you realize it or not, Isaiah is thinking in terms of King David. This passage that we've been looking at this morning, verses 21 through 31, the underlying current there that you see very clearly in other passages in Isaiah has to do with King David. So this special passage that we're looking at in verse 27, the Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness where the city is going to be restored to a time of justice and righteousness in David's time is like this big fat Isaiah written arrow that says, go back and look at David. Go over there and look at David, people in this context. So let's do that. Let's look at what was promised to David in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And let me just tell you too, I'm shocked that I have much peace about, this much peace about sharing this sermon and sharing a truth like this with you because I know that whether you think you need it or not, whether you're sleepy or not this morning, whether you've checked out and zoned out because there's nothing you can touch and feel, there's no nifty illustrations like that this morning, you need it. I know you need it. The people in Isaiah's time needed it. And I'm going to show you another time where someone else needed it. So if you're sleepy this morning, wake up and pay attention to this passage. This beautiful, beautiful, rich promise made to King David 250 years before Isaiah a thousand years before Jesus. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. A man after God's own heart is saying, Man, this just isn't right. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David's like, I want to build a house for the ark. It's just wrong that it's in a tent and I've got a nice house. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David this. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak uh, a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Begin to listen to these promises that begin to just cascade out of this passage. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I have appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Just let that word kind of, let it echo in here. Forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is the promise made to David. Your throne shall be established forever. God made some massive, massive promises to David. And Isaiah is clearly thinking about David and these promises as he's speaking in this, as he's writing in this passage here in chapter 2. But go back to Isaiah if you'd like to. You don't have to or you can listen. Isaiah chapter 11, listen to this passage that has to do with the justice and righteousness that a promised Davidic king would bring. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is martyr equipping truth right here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. There will be no I scratch your back and you scratch mine in his justice. He'll not decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. Mm. That's good news for the orphan and widow right there that had no scratch currency. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loin. Man, this is a recurring theme through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, as he's trying to prepare a people for imminent exile if they don't repent, is taking them to the promise that God made to David of a righteous king and an eternal forever reign. His appeal to repentance and his appeal to endurance is remember the promise made to David? I'm going to be really frank with you. Before studying these last few weeks and preparing for this sermon, I couldn't even have told you the promise made to David. Yet that is the food and the nourishment for that people a couple thousand years ago. That's the thing that's supposed to help them go the distance, like a power bar in the middle of a marathon. This is the goods to keep them going. The promise made to David. Anybody else? Am I, is anybody else in league with me going, man, I, was never, I don't know that I've ever been mindful of the promise made to David. Okay, well, maybe we're in good company if you're identifying with me. So critically important. And this picture of justice and righteousness and the purification of his people 
all is connected to this promise made to David of a Davidic king that would keep this reign going forever. Jeremiah has it in view. Jeremiah in chapter 23 verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David. David at this point has been dead about 350 years, 400 years. He's talking about David's line. I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. There you see him, justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The promised Davidic king will execute justice and righteousness and will redeem this people from without. They as a people have no currency for redemption. They could spill every drop of blood in every sheep and every lamb and every goat in their land and not cover their sins. They need something to come from without and that something that comes from without is the Davidic king that was promised to David. And it's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The purification of Zion and the repentant has to come from without. It comes from a shoot, from the stump of Jesse, executing justice and righteousness like good kings do. The passage ends over there in Isaiah. If you've left Isaiah, you can go back there. Just briefly summarize these last couple of verses. Verses 28 through 31, then there's this. Here's what's in store for the turning ones, the repentant. They'll be purified through justice and righteousness of this Davidic king that's promised. But here's what's in store for the unrepentant. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. And like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender. And his work a spark. Not tender as in sweet tender. Tender as in the kind of stuff you start fires with. The strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The stiff and stark reality here in this next few verses is that the rebels and sinners, those who continue in unrepentance, will be broken and consumed. That's a guarantee. They will be ashamed of the oaks that they desired and the gardens that they chose. That's imagery of these false religions, these pagan religions that had a lot to do with the every green tree reference. They'll be ashamed of those things. What's interesting is the governing factor, this, if this doesn't convict you, then you're, you're not alert. The governing factor in their religion, guilty Israel, the ones wearing orange, in their religion was, the, was what they found helpful, i.e. what they delighted in. Whatever makes me happy, that's what I'm going to pour myself into. And then the second part, and in what they determined to be relevant and valuable, i.e. what they chose. Do you do that with your religion? 
I'm tempted to do that with my preaching because I probably wouldn't have preached this sermon if I had. Because I can see when things look relevant in your faces. I can see the contrast between last week when we had some stuff we could touch. We had an offering envelope. We know what that's like. We want to make sure that's not a golden talisman. We had a, a walking cane. There's some things we could touch last week. All of us had some very relevant things we can touch, but not this week. The temptation to leave those things. Ah, that's not real functional. It's not real practical. But they would be guilty of doing the same thing that they did where they are determining what they're going to call their religion is what they desire and what they call practical, not what God says matters. God says a promise made to David at this point for us 3,000 years ago is something that we should be starkly, keenly aware of. That's what God says is important. So whether it makes for a smaller church or sleepy church attenders on a Sunday morning, that ain't my business. Man, that's why I'm finding peace in a passage like this. That's why I'm finding peace in preaching a passage like this, in this way. Because God says it matters. It mattered enough for Isaiah to bring it in to this context leading up to the ex exile as an appeal to repentance and as a and a, an appeal to faithfulness. But the unrepentant, they will be broken and consumed. They'll be like withered oaks, he says, and thirsty gardens. And in the end, the unrepentant and his work will prove highly flammable. That's the hellfire and brimstone of the passage right here. You say, man, our church doesn't preach hellfire and brimstone. We do. Because right here, the unrepentant and his works will prove highly flammable. Now, I think at this point you've done the hard work in listening. And there's work in listening. I know it. But turn to Psalm 89. This is where we bring it home. Psalm 89. I think we're downhill, or we're on the downhill slope at this point. Because I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to be really honest with you. As I'm preparing a sermon like this, and I'm thinking, man, what do we do with this? I hope you're thinking that right now. I hope if, if you've had some ability to apprehend what we've considered in these last few minutes, that you're thinking the same thing that I've been thinking these last few weeks. What are we to do with this? It's a very fitting question. Or we could just consider it a cool Bible study, a nifty Bible study, and we could go home and eat, eat some lunch and nary a thought, unless it's just willing to think about how nifty it was again. But what are we to do with this? I think Psalm 89 is a guide. In fact, I think there is a guide, a human guide, showing us what to do with this in Psalm 89. His name is Ethan. We have a couple of Ethans in here. There's an Ethan over here and an Ethan back there. I talked to one of the Ethans this morning. I said, hey, there's another Ethan over here. And they're both named Ethan Daniel. That's kind of, kind of crazy. Well, this is Ethan the Ezraite. Now that I'm embarrassed two Ethans. <laughs> this is Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan the Ezraite was likely a contemporary of David. Okay? He's writing this psalm likely having to do with something in his context. We don't know exactly what he's writing about in his context, but like the word that is living and speaks to every age, as he's writing it, in some ways it's prophetic. The psalm actually, well, I'm going to save the good part. I'm going to save the, the, the explanation for as we go. 
I just want you to meet Ethan first. Ethan the Ezraite. We're going to see what this guy does with these truths about this promise made to David. We're going to see if he's got anything for it. You know what's cool too about this psalm is it says at the beginning of the psalm it's a maskal of Ethan the Ezraite. A maskal is a teaching psalm. It's not something that you just sing because it's nifty and has a good beat. It's something that you're actually teaching the people as they sing it. They're reminding themselves of something. They're equipping themselves with something. God is going to use this psalm to prepare them for something and equip them with something. So that's what he's going to do with us this morning. Ethan the Ezraite is going to do some teaching here in these next few minutes through his psalm. What we do with the truth like David being promised an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness. Okay, so let's look at it. Beginning in verse 1. We're just going to read big chunks of it. Remember, we're on the downhill slope, so hang in there. We're going to see what he does with the promise of an everlasting reign over a just and righteous, in this case, purified people. Beginning in verse 1. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You've said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. And build your throne for all generations. A cool promise to the offspring and to the throne, or regarding the offspring and regarding the throne. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? It's a pretty cool psalm. It's just really celebrating. Just really enjoy celebrating with me and just thinking about all that's said here. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared on the, in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Your heaven, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that's in it, you've founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one. This is all about David. I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes from before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. 
I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. This is like a song version of the promises that were made to David over there in 2 Samuel. And it's beautiful. If you really take it in and you consider each of these movements of these promises of an everlasting reign and of a people that continue those things that we stop down for a minute and the offspring forever and a throne for all generations. It's like a song version of that. It's really pretty. Let's continue reading and see what happens. Verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules. The tone has changed a little bit. If his people forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove him from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. If he's wayward, I will make the crooked straight. I will deal with my enemies and foes, but I will not remove him from my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me like the moon it shall be established forever a faithful witness in the skies man those passages right there just sounds like Ethan is just really enjoying God's faithfulness if hypothetically speaking if the people became wayward right if just, just imagine a scenario where they might actually start whoring with all the neighbors. You know, if we could just, I just kind of imagine, you know, that they might actually be wayward and might turn their face from him and might actually forget their father and might whore against their husband. Just imagine hypothetically that God says, I, 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 even, even if they do that, I'm not going to bail on them because I'm not going to be unfaithful to my faithfulness. I've made a promise to David so despite what this people might do, hypothetically, it's good to hear that God won't bail on them. Let's continue into the next verse. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. Just envision Jerusalem just destroyed. 
All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you've not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. What's interesting about this psalm is it's written as part of a group of psalms that are called the exilic psalms. These are likely the psalms that the exiles in Babylon or in Assyria were singing as they sat and wept together by the rivers of Babylon having been ripped from their homes. Their sons turned into eunuchs in the king's court. This is actually the psalm that they're singing among a few others. Whenever Ethan wrote it, little did he know, it would be food. It'd be the power bar for the exiles as they survive brokenhearted in Babylon and pine for God to fulfill his promise that he made to David. That's the heart of this psalm. You want to read this psalm in context? Man, it's got some really cool and exciting and wonderful things in the beginning. But then it gets real honest. Wait a second, God. You made all these promises. And you also made promises of how it would go if we were to forsake you. And here it looks like we're walking in the consequences of that. It's like this is a song version of what Isaiah said was going to happen if they weren't repentant. Ethan the Ezraite put it to music. It may have been written during David's time, but it was sung the loudest during the exile while they wept by the rivers of Babylon. Let's close out this passage beginning in verse 46. The sad song of an exile. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? I wrote in my little margin there, the shoot from the stump of Jesse can. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. What an honest psalm. Man, I like Ethan. He just basically says, God, where are you? Where did you go? You made some big promises. Where did you go? I can't but help but imagine that 12, 12 Syrians wondered the same thing just a few weeks ago as they were martyred and tortured first. Where did you go? go the last half of this psalm has been described as Hebrew sobs Hebrew sobs strained to the point of breaking all that Ethan had to hold on to 
what's God's promise to, to David. That's all he had to hold on to was God's promise to David that he would reign or his line would reign forever. That Zion would be a city on a hill, just and righteous yet again. And that God would redeem and purify his people. Eleven Christian adults and one Christian 12-year-old must have held on to something like that. That's substantial. If it's a teaching psalm and a mascal, then it seems like the lesson would be to hold fast to the promises of God in exile. Not when it comes, not if it comes, but when it comes. When you face a dark night of the soul, when you're hurting and broken, think of all the stuff that we reach for. Think of all the stuff that we make a beeline for when we're hurting or we're in the dark night of the soul. Think of all the stuff that we medicate with. What Ethan is medicating with, Ethan the Ezraite, he's medicating with the promises of God. It's all I got right now. God promised something to my father, David, so I'm going to hang in there. If it's a teaching psalm, man, there's something to learn there. Ethan was hurting, but he held fast to promises yet to be fulfilled. We have the fulfillment of those promises to hold fast to. For him, it was just a shadow. We have the substance Man, we have the real, the complete story. We know that, in fact, from David's line, from Jesse's stump came a shoot. A suffering servant who was born a virgin, who lived and died sinless. We know that. Ethan just had a little bitty glimpse. We've got a big, big picture, a big true story. We know that he lived and died sinless. He left a tomb vacant after dying our death and that he now reigns and rules forever. That'll equip some martyrs right there. Can that be enough for you to hold on to? Can it? It's got to be. I told you. I told you you had faith that this was an identity building sermon. Equipping you to be a faithful placeholder. You shouldn't walk away convicted this week. I heard from a number of folks last week. They felt really convicted. And that's, that's okay. There's nothing wrong. That's... Some sermons leave you. They should leave you just convicted. You shouldn't walk away convicted from this sermon. (laughs) 
you should walk away encouraged, knowing that you are the fruit of fulfilled promises made to David 3,000 years ago. You are purified by justice and righteousness. You are citizens of Zion, and your and our king lives forever. Let's pray. God, I want a promise made to David that became a, a, a refrain in Isaiah's ministry that Ezra wrote about, or Ethan the Ezraite wrote about, that the exiles must have sung by the rivers of Babylon. God, I want that promise to be vivid I want it to be so vivid for me, for my family, for this people, that it's something we can hold on to. I want it to be something, something that builds identity for us, something that you use in our lives to be faithful placeholders, whatever these next 47 may hold. God, this morning, I hope that a byproduct of our time together has been to honor Christians who've died in these last few months faithfully, who've died well. Some momentary events and some in more protracted torture and even crucifixion. I pray for a sobriety as a result of our times and truth like this. I pray for sobriety that you will use to galvanize us to faithfulness. We are thankful, Lord. We trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute our elements here in a moment, but I just want to just introduce you, not introduce you, but just kind of give you this vision, this visual of that courtroom again. Once you realize from this sermon, from these passages, verse 27, this justice and righteousness from without, that redemption only comes from without. Jerusalem couldn't muster justice and righteousness, not enough. They were sick from head to toe. It says earlier in the chapter. It only comes from without. And only the repentant can receive it. Only the repentant can receive it. And the guilty in orange hears from the judge. I'm going to purify you. Not by a long prison sent. Not by penance. Not by torture. Not even by death.
not your death. I'm going to redeem you by someone else doing your time and dying your death. His life and his death will atone for yours. Your bondage and your filthy orange garments are going to be placed on him. And his righteous garments will be placed on you. You'll walk in his freedom, wearing his clothes, while he freely enters into bondage and pays for your transgressions. The supper is a weekly reminder of that reality. I need this reminder every single week because I forget what's really important sometimes. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy him in faith.